What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 204 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with Kevin Marshall from RestratoApp.com. RestratoApp provides handy solution for WordPress sites, specifically course creators. And Kevin's story is a cool one of entrepreneurship and how he landed in the online entrepreneurship space and how he finally created a successful business around online entrepreneurship. It was a long road for him with lots of twists and turns, lots of ups and downs, lots of failed starts. But in the end, Kevin created Restrato App and has multiple other online businesses that he's partnered with his wife on that are successful. Kevin also has a podcast called Cafe Truth. I jumped on the mic with him for episode 10 of Cafe Truth. So head on over to Cafe Truth and definitely check that out. It was a fun conversation conversation with Kevin. He's a very eloquent speaker, very philosophical in the way he approaches his life. And Cafe Truth does deep dives into stoic philosophy. One interesting thing is Kevin is a type 1 diabetic, and we talk about that towards the end of the podcast, about what it's like as a digital nomad traveling the world as a type 1 diabetic and how anybody with this condition can do it with obviously a lot of foresight and care. But I think it's a great example of how with the right mindset, the right approach, anything is possible from entrepreneurship to lifestyle design. And Kevin's a great example of that. And I just want to thank Kevin for coming on being so transparent and open about his lifestyle and his path through online entrepreneurship. If you're a first-time listener, please pull out that phone, hit subscribe on whatever you're listening to this on. If you like this episode and you want to share it with somebody, somebody possibly has type 1 diabetes and you feel like they can benefit from this episode, some of the things Kevin talks about, the links I provided in the show notes, send that over to that friend. Kevin and I sure would appreciate a share. And if you like it, leaving a comment is also tremendously helpful as well. Five-star rating. This really helps in the algorithms that help people find misfits and rejects within the search engines. So all those comments, all those five-star likes, all those shares really help misfits and rejects get found a lot easier. And really quick, if you want to support misfits and rejects, please head over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop and pick up a misfits and rejects t-shirt. They're super comfortable. It's this tri-blend material that's so comfortable and I can send them anywhere in the world. So don't hesitate to order one if you're in Australia, if you're in Europe, if you're in Southeast Asia. I can send them to you, no worries. Please head over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop and pick one up. And the other way to support Misfits and Rejects is by going over to patreon.com backslash Misfits and Rejects and a monthly donation. Whatever you want, nothing is expected, all is appreciated. And with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Kevin Marshall, the host of Cafe Truth and the creator of RestratoApp.com. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Marshall from RestratoApp.com. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Well, happy to be here. Yeah, dude, it's nice to have you. You're calling in from Phoenix. Phoenix, Arizona. And 108 degrees. 108, dude. Oh, yeah. Man. That's yeah, it's it, it is hot. Um, I used to live in California as a, in a much more pleasant temperature range, but uh, it's funny now that I'm here, it doesn't even feel that. It feels like a regular day. If, if I had a day like this in L.A., I would have thought the world was ending, and now I'm able to walk outside, take walks, and so it's you get used to it. Interesting. I prefer the humid heat rather than hot, dry heat. That's interesting. I like yeah. something. I feel like I'm cleansing at all times. 
You know, I've gotten used to that, and I I like it too. I I used to live in Austin a little for a little while, and uh, I never got used to the humidity though. Um, what I love about those climates is the the evenings are amazing, right? So it's, you you go out and it's like a nice warm blanket as you're going out and hanging out and stuff uh, in the in the evening. So that's the nice thing about humidity. I love that too. I just for me, it's like uh, the evenings like that are just like picnics in a park with friends and beers, and like that's what I love the most. Oh, beautiful! Love it. Um, you originally from LA area or California? Yeah, so I grew up in the Bay Area of California, and then I moved down to LA in my twenties to go to college, and then like many people, I just never left and uh, and stayed there probably for another twelve years or so. Uh, so I've, I've had my share of LA and, uh, yeah, like it's a, it's a place I have a, a lot of love for and also a lot of annoyance, <laughs> annoyance with, um, eventually we left because of the traffic and because of just the, the costs and just it, there's things that I, that I've always kind of bothered me about living in a big city like that. It probably is more to do with the, the city size. I think LA is such a, a big city. And maybe I'm just somebody who likes a little more intimate of a city. So I uh, eventually left that. But I, I do have a lot of love for L.A. nonetheless. I do, too. I was actually up there yesterday and um, just marveling at how much I do love it. Like right now, there's not much traffic, so it's a lot more desirable. But if you can navigate it, if you have somebody who helps you find those great little pockets where it's just rich with culture and food, it's like it's a magical place. But to get to those pockets can take up to like three hours sometimes it can yeah yeah even even if it's technically only a few minutes away without traffic uh can sometimes take hours to get you know a couple blocks uh which which drive me a little crazy but you're right i mean there's places that we were we were there we had left for about five years in 2012 my wife and i and then we went back in 2017 and lived there for about a year and um it was cool just to find some of these neighborhoods that we really hadn't experienced. I mean, I, I can't remember exactly where I want to say near Gardena or something like that. There's a, there's kind of massive Korea towns and then there's uh, little, little Indias and little, you know, uh, obviously various J- Japan towns around, not just little Tokyo and culturally it's quite an amazing experience food wise and all that stuff. So I do miss that. I'll bet. Uh, do you mind me asking where you went to university? Yeah, I went to Cal Poly Pomona, which is east of east of LA, and it was a big engineering school. I, I originally went there because I was going to study engineering, and ended up with a business degree. So, uh, uh, but it's a fun school, and I I had I was there for a while. I enjoyed it. Nice. Did you get a graduate degree as well? I did. I got a graduate degree um, in IT information systems and stuff, uh, not too far from there in Fullerton, and so. Uh, that's sort of where I began my interest in programming and, and, and coding and stuff like that. Uh, so I've, I was, yeah, I've covered the LA Southern California area pretty well in terms of life and acad- uh, academics and all that stuff. Yeah. It's interesting as I talk to more and more digital nomads and the ones that seem to have fallen into very successful niches or very viable ones, if you will, like have an understanding of like, you know, coding or there's, they have a specific skill set that is very transferable to the online game. And whether they're like a digital commuter, for example, they work for a big company, but they don't have to go into the office or like someone like you, I know you've had like what, three or four failed attempts before you kind of found your groove, but it's just, it's always cool to hear your st- type of story, like how you started, 
you know, what you did, what you failed at, and then where you found your footing. So if you wouldn't mind kind of taking us through that, that'd be super cool. Cause I also know it's intertwined with some interesting aspects of your life. Like traveling was important to you and your wife. I know you have children. Um, and yeah, we talked a little bit pre-show you're, you're a type one diabetic, which has definitely made travel very interesting for you. So yeah, means, like just go, go for it. Tell us more. Cool. About it. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll just kind of go with the, the, the elements that I thought I think most people would find more interesting, which is that I, I, as I was graduating from my bachelor's, um, I ended up working at the same school. I ended up working at Cal Poly Pomona for a few years. And, um, and that's where I realized how much I hate working in a corporate or <laughs> corporate or office environment. I think that's sort of what, what kind of came out of that experience was like living, working at a very bureaucratic big institution where most people, most of my colleagues were make, you know, we were making nothing. I, I remember my salary was like 25,000, which even back then was not very much money. And, um, if you were, it was a very safe place to work though. This was even a little bit before the great recession. And so there was a lot of comfort in that environment. It was academic and all of my colleagues were, who had just graduated like me were on the, on the road towards getting a master's in, I'm not even sure, like, I guess, uh, education or something like that, or student affairs, I think it was called. And so that was what everyone was shooting for. And I remember them telling me, well, once you get this master's, uh, when you get back, you'll be offered a job where you can make up to 45,000 a year. And I, it was then I realized like, wow, there's people here who will spend the rest of their life making sub 60, sub 70,000 for the rest of their lives. And that's because there's so little available in terms of payment. Um, uh, that's what everyone's shooting for. So it started to, I started to kind of connect the dots and realize that no matter what kind of organization you're in, that was a program, that was a school, so it was, the budget was limited. Later, I ended up at, uh, working after my master's in IT. I worked at Boeing. So that's obviously a lot higher pay. You can have a, kind of that kind of corporate life where you're, you're getting a, a lot more pay. Um, but you're still, both, both systems were very big. Both systems had this rat, kind of like rat race aspect to it. And everybody's always trying to one up each other and tear each other, uh, tear each other down to so that they can climb this corporate ladder. Uh, or if it's a, a state institution, it's a state institution ladder. It's always politics. And that became very distasteful for me after about seven years of working in various office environments, whether it was, again, the university side of things or, or working for a large government contractor. I just began to be a little disenfranchised by the whole thing. And what I kind of remember telling a colleague of mine when I when I quit my job. So I ended up ended up quitting my job in 2012. And I remember a few months before when I had told everyone I was leaving, I was explaining to him like, you know, I think the thing with entrepreneurship is that everyone's sort of like in a company, everybody sees everyone's like a monkey and we all see this little like bushel of bananas on the sitting on the ground, maybe a few feet from the ground. And everybody's rushing for that little little bundle of bananas. And that means that there's not many bananas left and everyone's fighting, you know, tooth and nail over this limited resource. And they're so amazed if they can, you know, even the, our, I remember our CEO of the company I was working for at the time, he probably, probably made around 150 to 200 K. And I was like, we all think that that's like the epitome. That's like the, the heights of what we can get to. But I was like, that's not very much money. And I realized that it was entrepreneurship and kind of going off on your own where, You'd be will you'd be able to see 
the bunches of bananas a little higher, maybe 10, maybe 20 feet higher in the trees, but no one was going for them. So it was harder to get to that, that bus, bunch of bananas, but it was going to be a bigger payoff. And that's what I started to realize, like, this, this is the way to go. I, I'm, I'm tired of fighting over limited resources with all these people. Yeah, absolutely do. I think a lot of us, I mean, I've, I've never been in the corporate world, but early on, like I felt it was important to me that I got to do what I want to do when I wanted to do it. And I designed my life to actually need very little. And I was comfortable in that kind of way of life where it's like I lived in a one room shack on the beach with friends in Nicaragua. And I surfed all day and like life was simple. And then things started to change when I was like, oh, I needed to get home because family members were getting sick and like I needed to be there for them. And I didn't, hadn't designed my life to really incorporate money into it, you know? Right. And that's when the online game became kind of that thing that made me see like, I knew I didn't want corporate, but if I could create something online, that would satiate my appetite to stay where I'm at, but also have the income to fly home when I'm needed. Um, so then when you did decide to leave the corporate world, what was your first venture? Yeah, so I I had basically started before quitting. I had started review, you know, just had this idea that I wanted to create some sort of platform, online platform. I was a developer at that time. I wasn't a very good one, but I was still one that I could code stuff. And I had done like small websites for for friends and and family. So I began working on this platform that Suddenly, I really, you know, I had this in my mind that I was going to be creating some online product that would become this big startup in Silicon Valley. And living in LA, it wasn't that far. I was starting to go to some meetups and and imagining my exit <laughs> ten years from now with this super successful. I think, you know, this is a, a few years after like the movie The Social Network had come out, and and that excited a lot of people about startups and stuff like that as well. Um, and so I started working on that. I even invited a friend of mine, and him and I were going to be co-partners, which is not a great idea for a good friend to to partner with in that respect. So we started working on this thing, and it was kind of silly. It was going to be a uh, – I say it now, but it was going to be a, a two-sided uh, marketplace for life coaching. And I was interested in spirituality and life coaching, but I was also interested in the technology side. So I started to develop this sort of platform that was going to be – um, this is where you could go to find a life coach and things like that. And, and I, I spent so much time on this and my goal was really this Silicon Valley kind of world that my, that I was going to eventually go up there and I was going to, you know, get funding and all that stuff. Um, somehow during that time, and I met my wife at this point and, and she was actually going through dental school, uh, when I met her, she was about early on in that. So, um, it was around a year, it was around 2011, I had developed kind of a core element, a core version of this product, of this this service product, and uh, I had started to follow a different podcast, and I came across a guy named Rob Walling, which runs something, something called MicroConf, people are probably familiar with that, and he also had a book out called Start Small, Stay Small, and that was sort of kind of a book that blew me away, because his whole notion was, hey, you know what, don't, don't go down the silly... Silicon Valley Road, where you're you're gonna basically ba- go from you know working in, in a corporate to basically working for an investor, and you're still gonna have a job. It's just gonna you're just gonna think you don't. Um, and so he kind of gave this this promise of a different way of doing it, which was you don't have to be that big, you don't have to get millions of dollars of funding. You can basically start something that's profitable, lucrative, and and live a great life with remote work, online work, 
you, you get your time back. You're building something for the long run. And that really excited me. He mentioned the four hour work week, I think a few times on his podcast. So I bought that. A few friends had already told me about that. And that was about it for a while. I just kept working on stuff. I happened to give it to my wife and she, uh, Rez started listening to the book. I remember she came home one day after a day at the dental lab, uh, at UCLA. And she said, have you read this thing? And I said, no, I haven't really read much of it. And she said, this, this is it. This is, this is the future. This is our future. You have to read this. She's like, this is like the Bible. We have to just do this, whatever this guy says. And, uh, she's like, I, I don't want to be a dentist anymore. And I was like, what? Uh, and so that really threw me off. Cause in my mind I was, you know, I had the perfect idea that I was going to, I was going to be able to, to rely on a nice dental income from my wife while I uh, basically played around with different startups. And so I suddenly realized that that wasn't going to happen. So we decided uh, after graduation that we were going to make a run for this. And we, uh, I told my current company that at the end of June, when she was graduating, we were going to quit. And, uh, that's when we, uh, that's when we did that. And we, we ended up going to Europe at that time for about three months, both to have a pre honeymoon and also to, um, hopefully get this startup working and lucrative and stuff. And, and at the time I quit, I, it was not making a dollar. Um, and so that's sort of the story of how we kind of got into that. And Can that startup did not work. Little, <laughs> yeah. I want to go a little deeper on that because you quit your jobs. You had a startup that at this point hadn't proven itself and you threw caution to the wind and went to Europe thinking that being in Europe was going to help your startup grow. <laughs> Cause I, I can relate <laughs> 100% to your, your approach. Like that's kind of what I've been doing for the last five years is like nothing that I've done is viable yet. I still head out and I become the digital nomad that I want to be without any income thinking yeah. that being on the road, is going to change something. Yes, that was the idea. And, and of course in hindsight, I would never recommend this plan to anyone. It's not a wise plan. I remember we chose, uh, we were going to go to Europe and, and initially I thought we were going to backpack and then we both realized, you know, we don't want to backpack. Let's just, for our work week style, let's just stay in one place. So we looked at Italy and we realized that the place that we probably could make the most, uh, spend the most time without having to spend the most money was Sicily. And I had Sicilian, you know, ancestry. So I thought that was a great idea. And I remember my boss, my CEO of my company at the time was, was Northern Italian. I, and I had announced to everybody that I was moving to Sicily. And he, as an Italian, he said to me, why are you moving to Sicily? And I said, Oh, I don't know, you know, ancestry, da, da. And he just said, okay, well, good luck. And I remember thinking, oh, what have I done? And so we actually ended up going to Sicily and it was a disaster. There was no internet anywhere. Um, it was relatively, uh, you know, the safety was a little unsure, actually. We had a couple of weird run-ins with, with like, uh, no possibly little gang members there. Um, and suddenly we realized, okay, this is serious. We've got to, we've got to figure this out. Um, and so we ended up in Rome for that first couple months and that was great. Had an amazing time, but sadly we spent a lot of time at cafes with bad internet trying to build this business. And, um, I wish in hindsight, because we ended up making no money anyway, I wish we just enjoyed that, that trip and not tried to work. Cause like you say, it was, it was, sort of this false hope that we were going to make this startup just produce money uh, like a little cash register out of the, out of the gate. Mm -hmm. Oh man, that false hope has been a solid foundation for all of my endeavors thus far. 
Um, so you, after three months, obviously you come to a point where your money's running out. This thing hasn't blown up. Then what do you do? Uh, well, we, we were able to get back just in time to, um, uh, just in time to basically have our wedding. And we had just in time to like not let our money run out completely. So we had a couple of grand and we were able to have a small wedding. Um, and then that's about when, after our wedding is sort of when the money began to run out and, and, um, it, it wasn't surprising, but it was a little disappointing because my expectation was like the four hour work week that like Tim Ferriss, we would just be, you know, so busy and so stressed out that we would just have, and because of all the customers we were having that we'd have to, you know, force ourselves to, to start to get VAs and all this stuff. And it just hadn't worked out that way. It would just looked like it was going nowhere. So we started to freak out. Um, my wife ended up working as a dentist actually, because we were going to hit the wall pretty soon. And so we ended up moving to Texas where there was a lot more opportunity for, for dentists and she quickly got a job and was able to, to kind of get us back to being afloat. And the, the goal was for me to keep working on this business and make it lucrative. Um, I gave it another six months, I'd say, and tried just about everything uh, to get things started. And nothing, nothing worked with this. It was just a complete flop. How much do you think you burned money-wise in this business over the years that you spent trying to make it work? Yeah, I'd probably say about five grand. It wasn't tons, but it was, you know, for us at the time, it was a lot. And it was, it, we were we were paying people to do articles. We were, I was trying to do some sort of YouTube series of interviews and with, with coaches. I was paying for ads. I was, we were going to some um, kind of yoga uh, conferences and buying booths for a few thousand here and there. So it was a lot of work and a lot of energy. And, uh, also what was interesting about it is that it was sort of, I had an interest in kind of personal growth and spirituality at the time, which I still do. But when it, when it began, that's why I got into that industry. But when I began actually being, you know, being requested, required to make money from that, it got really unpleasant. And I remember writing articles about meditation that I just knew I didn't, didn't give a crap about what I was writing. It felt very inauthentic. I was writing based on SEO optimization and stuff. And I was like, this doesn't feel like the dream I had. I, I don't even feel like what I'm saying is true. Um, so it felt very phony. And I also noticed that there were a lot of other people in the life coaching space um, that were doing the same thing. We were a bunch of, we were writing a bunch of SEO optimized BS articles because we knew they would get traffic in the hopes that it would, you know, it would work out from a business perspective perspective, but there were only a, a handful of successful players in that space. Uh, it's not like accounting where everyone needs an accountant and you're going to, if you're an accountant, you're likely going to find some customers. Uh, you know, that's a space where people don't really want to pay that much. And so for us trying to create a platform, it was not easy and not to say it couldn't be done, but it was, it was just nothing but challenges. What made those people successful who were successful in the space in your opinion? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think a mix of having many of them were just kind of shameless. Like <laughs> I have to say they were sort of like, they didn't care after a while that was a little unauthentic. They learned what worked. They learned what resonated with people. They would, they would, um, they, they may have also had just sort of a per certain personality, like a bubbly success, you know, wearing that kind of hat of success personality. That, that's often what I saw. And also I think that people who are just 
literally unwilling to give up and just play the game longer than anybody else would play would eventually get there. But not always. I would I would actually see some coaches that have been around for five to ten years that certainly hadn't made even much in on roads or inroads there. So yeah, it's a, it's a really good question and maybe luck too. So it's it's definitely something that after a while I realized, okay, I'm done with this. There's got to be something else going on. Um, and so then I began to make, I started a business that was coaching websites. So websites for life coaches. And I thought, well, this is much more, this is more likely to work. This is much more nuts and bolts. It's what I do anyway. I my, my background. I don't have to worry about, you know, I don't have to worry about my messaging. It doesn't have to be a spirituality. I can just charge people a monthly fee. Boom, let's do it. That one did better. And it got to, I think, a height of about $500 a month. And I was excited about that around that time. But what I immediately started noticing was that it eventually it plateaued and it never, never went beyond that, no matter what I tried. Um, and so that's my second failure, <laughs> second failure of this. Meanwhile, I'm basically at home and I'm in Austin, Texas, and my wife is getting up in the morning at the crack of dawn. I'm not a morning person heading off to work to do a job that she doesn't like very much. She, in fact, she starts to dislike it and feeling like, what am I doing? I just quit my job. I used to actually be a contributor to our, to, you know, to our life. And I'm just basically playing around with these failed businesses. So there was a lot of pressure too at the time to like make something work and nothing was working. Did that ever create conflict within your relationship? Um, a little bit, but it, it was more that I saw that it eventually would absolutely. It was like if I don't she was she was still giving me some time to make this work, but I, I started to realize like if if this doesn't work and I'm either gonna have to go back and get a corporate job, which I with the thought of was very, you know, just terrible for me because I just told everybody Sayonara. And then uh i knew that if if I didn't it would also cause some conflict in our relationship, uh, just the way it was going. So yeah, it was a the um the other failures you had before you were successful like, I mean, you said like three failures you had so you've named two thus far is there one more um yes so i had cr also created a <laughs> i have many of these but actually i created another kind of offshoot of the of the coaching website business which was uh a website business for photographers and so i thought well that's i'll just take the same model and plug it into the photography space and uh and charge photographers for kind of features such as um, being able to share protected uh, protected albums and stuff with their clients for a, maybe a wedding shoot that they did or something like that. Um, also got really you know, nowhere with that one. I think that one was a matter of just being having a product that wasn't very good compared to the to really a lot of fantastic competitors in that space already. Um, so that was my third failure before we finally found something that did work. Before we find out what made what finally worked, when, why would you think you were so drawn to like the coaching side of things? It seems like that was the continued path that you would follow. Yet there was you weren't finding success in it, even though they were trying it at different sort of niches. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it was I had worked with a personal life coach in two thousand seven and eight, and that was quite a transformative experience for me. I had, um, I had grown up in a, in a, it would say a pretty intense family. We had a lot of drama in our household. And when I got to my late teens and early twenties, I was 
easily very depressed. I was just for no good reason, or not, not any reason, reason that I could see. Every day, just felt a lot of heaviness and depression, and and felt that that was really. I really wasn't making much in terms of my actions um, come true. I mean, in terms of my dreams, I wasn't really taking an action on any of that. And so I went underwent some psychology, of course. I went through, uh, saw therapists and stuff. But then about 2006 and five, five and six, I think I began working with a, with a life coach that I had known through a friend. And I really took a lot of, uh, took, a, took me on a different path. And I began to stop blaming everyone for my life and, and, uh, blaming things, external circumstances for my life. As I mentioned, I'm a type one diabetic. I was very resentful of that. I was resentful of, you know, the world. And when I began to take more responsibility in my life, I started to see things start to work out in a way I'd never seen before. Things were changing in my life, things that I hadn't seen change or move for years. So that experience with that life coach was pretty incredible for me. And I, I think I always had a connection to life coaching and an appreciation for it in a way that even the therapy didn't have for me it really really helped me to start taking action what does a life coach do that's different from like a therapist for example yeah i mean i think that a good therapist will do both they'll give you some insight and analysis on what some of your blocks have been growing up and what you know validating a lot of pain and trauma that you've experienced and i think that's really important i think it's a an essential uh phase uh, and step and so I had a, had done some of that, and that did feel better. But I hadn't had a therapist that really helped me get out of that that sense of like, well, yeah, a lot of bad stuff has happened to me, or, or a lot of crappy things happened back then with with family members and stuff. I hadn't really moved on from that and been able to take really actual steps. I hadn't really had somebody that really. I, I think a I think a good therapist or a good life coach is somebody who's worked through that themselves. And I'm not certain that the people I worked with had really moved through. And shifted very much themselves. So it may have just been bad luck on that. But what this life coach had been through, um, the drudges themselves, they'd been through some major pain and, and depression. And because they were able to shift, they were able to help me shift my perspective and see life more from a perspective of, of sort of like a battle. And once I accepted that life was a battle to begin with, that's just, let's make that assumption, life became, there was an expectation for it. I began to enjoy that warrior-like approach to life, and that that was that was when things started to shift. For so, I would say that that was it for me. I'm not sure, you know, if that's everyone's experience, but no, it's beautifully said. I can relate in a lot of ways to what you said about the taking responsibility moment that I had in my own life at 17 years old. Um, did you have a moment similar where I was just like, oh shit, like now I get it. Like I need to take full responsibility for everything in my life. Yeah, I think there were a few of these, and one of them was um, when I had I had been living with my parents up in Northern California. I had been going to community college for like two or three years, and I just saw like no and no light at the end of this tunnel. Nothing was changing, and I realized uh, this this has got to shift for me. Um, and that's that's when I began working with that th- that life coach and and really began to to say, hey, I can actually take some action here. So that's when I moved down to L.A. Um, and then I began to study something called uh, Toltec Wisdom, which comes from a book that's pretty popular called The Four Agreements. And um, that book really helped me shift my perspective on um, 
uh, on taking responsibility, on taking, on seeing myself as more of a warrior. And I, I want to say that if two or three years after reading that book, I started to wake up in the morning and just that heaviness and that depression were just not there anymore. That just, it just felt like a lot lighter. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly when that happened, but it was something that I do attribute to some of that personal growth that I went through. Yeah, it's interesting. So three or four years, you said into it, were you reading the book multiple times, like over and over again? And then yeah. slowly waking up on days going like, wait, I feel actually kind of decent today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Huh, it, really it was a very, it was, it was a really powerful just to see, you know, I guess just to see that I, you know, uh, number one, I, I can take responsibility for my actions and where I am. And also, it all, in, a, in another way, on the kind of the flip side, to not take on everybody else's issues and to, to not take things personally. That's one of the big teachings of that book. So, so not letting people's why making why make drama out of everything. And, and so as I began healing myself and not taking things personally from other people, things just got way easier. I mean, it was just like, oh, life isn't. Life isn't meant to be so depressing. It's actually kind of fun, even if you have challenges. And again, I still had some major physical issues at that time. Um, lots of stuff that wasn't going my way, but I still started to be, I still began to see that despite challenges, there's a certain amount of joy in life that's available if you're willing to see it. Yep. Agreed. And I kind of did the same thing with, I'm a big Eckhart Tolle fan. So I've been for the last, I don't know, I don't five or six years now i think every night before bed i read like one or two pages nice either in the power of now or in a new earth and i think i've gone through them like five times each now but um it just it really makes a difference to just like you said it does start to like infiltrate your cells in a way that hadn't ever happened to me before where it's like mm-hmm. it takes time but yeah you get into a, a um a rhythm that all of a sudden you're like, wait, I am waking up feeling pretty good about today. It could be a yeah. good day, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And, and that whole aspect with him of being, uh, being aware of the moment, which now I kind of say it with almost cliche. That almost sounds cliche when I say it, but at the time it was so radical for me, just like no one had ever pointed me to, uh, to the moment and to knowing what that even meant. And, uh, being here for it and, and, you know, kind of separating my thoughts about the moment from, from actually experiencing the moment itself. And so he really, he was pretty transformative in my life as well. Yeah. He does a great job in bringing it into like a, uh, a verbiage. I think that's more relatable to mm-hmm. where we're at. I think it's been said in a million ways for thousands of years, but trying to read the old text is just like, I don't really understand what they're saying. And he's like, just brings it into a, in the moment where we can understand it, I think more, absolutely it's more relatable when it comes to, um, kind of the final step you took before you, you, you were able to look your wife in the face and say, guess what? It's working. <laughs> you know, like what was that? What was the business? Like, I know you have multiple businesses now that, you know, make income, but like, can you talk us through that? Yeah. So that was, that was uh, funny in the sense that it, it wasn't really me at all. Um, my, Wife, because again, she had still been interested in wanting to to make this work for both of us, and so we still had this four hour work week dream. We were supposed to be in, you know, Nicaragua. We were supposed to be in, in other around the world in Spain and stuff like that. We were still, you know, in the U.S. and it was like, where? What are we doing? So we had this. Um, 
I call him sort of like my whimsical friend that I that I had met on uh, one of these trips. It was a Toltec trip with I think one of the um, someone affiliated with with the author Don Miguel Ruiz. And we're in Mexico and Mexico City. We're climbing these pyramids, and and I meet this guy who's this. He's about fifteen year old, fifteen years my senior, and he's just a delightful, happy guy. And I, you know, him and I became friends. Um, so fast forward maybe five or six years later, he comes to visit us in Austin, Texas, because he's um, he's kind of digitally nomadic. He's traveling around the world. He was in China at the time. And he tried to come back for some visa reasons and didn't have a home, so no place to stay. Uh, so he, we invite him to stay with us for a few for a few weeks, and he does so, and uh, it was a great time. And I was just, you know, hoping that he he had had a, a pretty successful business in England years before that that had uh, it made some money on. So I was talking to him about what was going on and you know how what do you think I should do, and he gave me some thoughts on that. But one day he he had been uh, he had been doing some some program called the I think it was the 30 day challenge maybe some of your listeners might be familiar with that but it was sort of an SEO challenge online that you could create a business based on what was being searched you know not too different from the four hour work week but it was a little more practical step by step and you'd use a tool you'd figure out what what were the trending topics and then you'd build a build a customer or build a list uh, based on that and sell them some products. And I was not into this at all. I was like, no, I've already got my, I've got my, my systems. I've got my businesses already. This is what I'm deep into. I'm not interested in finding a new business. So I was basically just not, not interested in what he had to say. My wife, on the other hand, was much more open. And one day I see them, we're all at the pool. And one day I see them on the, on the laptop and they're both like really engaged and excited and, and like they're laughing. And I'm like, what's going on over here? And it turned out that they were work- she, she was really interested in this. Oh, third day challenge. We got to try this. So her and he, he and her had been starting the process and began to see that there was an interest in, in some dental stuff. And based on the fact that she was a dentist, that's where they were looking. And we found some areas of interest that, um, that we could explore and, and test. And so, uh, I was like, all right, well, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Let's let's keep working on this. He eventually left, but we continued that process. And in about a month of going through that, we were able to find a particular niche that seemed like it had some promise to it and began to write some blog posts, began to um, post some stuff on Facebook. And, and within about a month and a half, we realized we had a business here and, you know, let's, let's make it happen. Even though it wasn't the businesses that I had dreamt of, you know? And so that's, that's, that's what it turned out to be. That's interesting. How'd that feel in the old ego after, you know, working so hard on yeah. it for so long? I can imagine there must've been a little bit of turmoil. It was, it, it was a bit of a, <laughs> it was a bit of a disappointment as well as a, as a certain relief because, uh, you know, not only was it not something that I had chosen and spearheaded, I thought I was the ideas guy in the couple, uh, but it was also not related to anything that I was good at. I was not a dentist. She was. And uh, what could I bring to this? You know, so I, okay, well, I'll bring the back end stuff. I'll help with the operation. So it was me kind of playing a, a secondary role um, and her being more the face of the business. And so that was a bit of a hit to the ego, I will say. Um, thankfully, I began, you know, thankfully I've gone through a lot of stuff about ego with that cartel stuff. I was aware of that was my ego. So I was able to, I think, 
curtail a little bit of that and, and have a some of self-awareness. And then the fact that actually money was starting to come in outside of her dental job was just so great that it was like, ah, oh, you know, screw this. Who cares what, what the business is? Can I let go of that and just appreciate the fact that this is actually working, whereas most of them have failed miserably? Nice, dude. Nice. And then, so that's one. And then you have the restratoapp.com, which is another successful venture. Was that yours or was that mutual? You both came up with that or how'd that one come to be? And so that was probably actually? mine. And, and Restrato Apps is a, just a brand that, um, we had, I had been doing so much back, back end work creating our, we have a, so we have a course for dentists. And so I had been doing so much work creating the back end systems for that. It was, there was membership aspects to that. There was a, a, a course, course modules that you'd have to go through. And it required a lot of customization because of the nature of this course. It wasn't simply that you could just go through. There was a lot of interaction and dynamic um, communication. And there was a whole system where students would submit kind of their progress and get feedback on that. And so I developed a lot of those kind of custom, I guess, uh, plugins is effectively what they were WordPress plugins that would meet some of these needs and different integration systems to make different systems talk to each other on WordPress. And so all that kind of came up, uh, resulted in me saying, well, you know, these are somewhat useful. I wonder if anyone wants them throwing some sales pages up and finding that there were people looking for those solutions actually, even without me having to do a lot of marketing. Uh, and so that was a promising. And so I began to, to just sell and develop those. And that, that was the beginning of this Restrato apps business. And the name, how, how'd you get the name for that? It's such an interesting name. Yeah. So that was, um, at the time after we began our business in the dental industry, um, we began listening to the tropical MBA and, uh, podcast and realize there's a bunch of people out in Vietnam. There's a bunch of people out in Thailand. Let's, let's go. And, you know, our business happens to be a little more cyclical. So there's your time of the year where it's really well, really good and really where where it's really slow. So during one of the slow times, we just rented out our apartment on Airbnb in, in Austin and jet off to Thailand where we were, um, continuing to, to develop that business. And one of my favorite cafes in the whole world, coffee shops in the whole world is called Restrato. Uh, so if any of any of your listeners um, have done some some travel through Thailand and, and Chiang Mai, uh, you probably you know you may have come through come upon it. It's a it's one of the more popular ones out there, and probably one of the best uh, tasting coffees you'll find uh, on the planet. I think. I think if you look up a Restrato um, as a word on Wikipedia, there's a picture of this particular cafe. So I, I know it's not only me who appreciates this. Um, and so that's the name, that was the name of the company. So I just, just had a love for coffee. That's cool. Why not stay on the road? I mean, now that you kind of, you're doing the four hour work week, you are, you know, in Thailand, you've been around a bit. Um, why continue to come back and spend so much time in the States? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think, um, it's been a, uh, a bit of a push and pull that my wife, uh, was a resident, permanent resident when I, when we got married and what that meant was that we could only leave for six months. And so that was sort of this like, you know, collar and leash around both of our necks. Like, okay, you can go have fun, but don't go too far. And then we're back. We'd have to always come back to the state side at least every six months and check in at least. And that would just inevitably lead to us staying. Um, so we didn't end up during those years. And this is again, before we had had children, we didn't end up doing as much traveling as we probably would have if it hadn't been for that. 
Um, so we did a first stint in Thailand and we absolutely loved it. And our plan was to keep, you know, coming back, but we, we ended up coming back. And at the time there was sort of this argument in Chiang Mai, I remember amongst, um, the digital nomads there that said that it went basically like, you know, it's so calm here. It's so pleasant. And the pace is so slow that you'll never really build a successful business if you stay in Chiang Mai, you just can't. It's not, it's not, there's not enough pressure. You're more likely to succeed if you're out in the States where things are more expensive and you have to make it work. And we kind of bought into that a little bit and thought that, yeah, we'll, we'll try that. Um, and that, uh, I can say, I don't really agree with that. I think that's actually, uh, I think it really is about the individual and how much, how ambitious and motivated they are. But we kind of bought into it. So we stuck, we stuck around a little longer than we should have probably here in the States. Mm, that's interesting. I've, a lot of guests have alluded to that. That pressure is the thing that has driven them to actually become successful, whether it's the lack of finances or whatever it means that their competitive nature. Um, and the only time I've heard them say that about like Chiang Mai is when they have gotten to like the seven figure mark. Really when I get to like the eight figure mark makes sense. And they're just like, this is not the place to do this. Like I need to be in, I mean, you could be stationary, obviously in Chiang Mai with, if you had a permanent residence, but like, I need to be a place where I can get a permanent residence and like, just grind for like, you know, three more years to get it to where it needs to be. Cause that's when the digital nomad life seems to become more difficult, um, for a lot of entrepreneurs, just they, when they hit that mark and they get that goal, it's like, okay, now it's time to really kick into gear. That totally makes sense to me. And, and, you know, I can, we, we haven't gotten to the seven figure levels and, um, we're happy in the six figures, but we're, um, there's always something to think about. And so I, I could relate to, I can, I can assume that that would be true is that you might get, you know, it definitely doesn't make you want to bend over backwards. Whereas like a seven figure level, you're probably really, you need a little bit of environmental stimulation and, and re, uh, reverberation there. Yeah. You mind me asking where your wife's originally from? Yeah, she's from South Korea. So, um, she grew up partly in the U S and, uh, and so she had a lot of context for here. Um, and, but she grew up most of her teen years and formative years were there. And so, uh, we've done some traveling there as well, which is, which has been fun, but it, it was funny cause I actually think that having traveled with her in Korea where I, where one of us knew the language and one of us knew nothing versus Thailand where we were both completely unaware of what was going on. I, I would say I prefer the the Thailand experience. I felt much less like a little, um, you know, doggy being pulled around <laughs> where we were both at the same level of like complete, you know, ignorance. So yeah. Does she speak Korean? Yeah. So she speaks, uh, she speaks Korean and she speaks English practically. I mean, I never, I never even knew she was from, she grew up in another place just because she'd, Again, she'd probably grown up here and probably grew up there. So in terms of her accent, it's pretty much undetectable either way. Hmm. That's really yeah. cool. How about you? Do you have any other languages under your belt? Uh, yeah, a little bit of German. And so when we were in Europe, uh, we spent some time in Germany. And uh, I and I got to kind of see how worthless that was uh, for me to learn uh, just because the Germans are pretty darn good at English and they're not interested in hearing people mm-hmm. butcher their language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, uh, one thing I'd like to bring back around cause you've, you've touched upon it once you've touched upon it once is, um, being a type one diabetic. Cause I think for some of my audience out there, that might be relatable and maybe, you know, keep them from 
going out into the world. Um, I don't know enough about it. Maybe you could kind of talk me through specifically, like what does it mean to be a type one diabetic as, as, a tr- as you travel? Yeah, great. Yeah, great. Um, you know, I think that it, before I began that, I guess the reason it's significant for me is before I began that I wasn't even sure I could do it. You know, it's, it's, it's a condition where effectively one of your organs has kind of stopped working, um, for the most part. And so you're, you know, there's a lot of, like any good, like a motor or something, there's a lot of automation now going on. There's computers adjusting, you know, maybe the fuel levels and the ratios and stuff like that. Well, that's what, that's what a pancreas does. It, it, it detects how much sugar you've eaten or carbohydrates you've eaten and it, and it kind of ramps up the level of insulin and produces that for you. And it's all happening automatically in, a, in an amazing way. So when that stops working, you've got to basically take over that job as a human and do this all yourself. And too little insulin will cause pain and suffering. And then too much insulin will put you in the hospital uh, and can kill you. So it's a very important hormone. You can't really mess it up. And it's, it's both life-threatening either, either direction. So you're always walking this tightrope with, with diabetes, especially with type 1. Um, type 2, there's a little more uh, flexibility there because things are kind of working, but it has its own kind of scenario problems. But as a type one, it's a very kind of uh, rigid and brittle. Some people call it brittle experience. It can be. Um, and so I was able to, you know, I think it's part of his mindset though. Uh, and then part of it is also just being willing to take some drastic changes. And I, I, I at that time, fortunately was able to, to drastically change my diet and um and make things a lot easier on myself but in but in terms of just there was a lot of fear i think beforehand of whether i could do it or whether i want to be stuck in some country um you know at the time i had this device attached to me that was basically called an insulin pump and it was delivering insulin on a constant basis to me uh, through through my skin and you know what if that breaks on the road and how am i going to get supplies and all that stuff and so i you know I, I would have some interesting experiences in thailand you know just um riding i had my bike i would ride um down the road to the only um you know one of the few pharmacies that carried the type of insulin i needed and it was like everything was sort of an adventure there and uh and have these conversations about stuff with pharmacists that would you know we would be misunderstanding each other and and you know, what was cool about it is just that you figure it out and you've realized that, you know, there's no real good excuse not to travel and live in another country. Even if you, if you, even if your mind tells you that this is not going to work, I'm, you know, I can't do it. Sorry. Um, and so while it was a little hairy at times, it was also really invigorating and exciting. Were there any countries or are there any countries you won't go to because it's just going to be too hard to find that type of insulin or is it pretty universal? I would say, um, I would say no, not really. I guess my, the main concern would be if I were in a country that was hairy enough where, you know, they could, they could put, I mean, I think the one thing I always worry about as a diabetic, and this happens in this country too, is if you're ever locked up in prison, for instance, or in some sort of waiting cell, a holding cell, maybe for immigration issues, um, that could be the end of you. You know, like I, there's many stories of diabetics who, got thrown in some prison or, or some waiting cell by immigration in another country. And then were just, they didn't understand what the condition was. They didn't really check on them. They didn't listen to their complaints. And basically if I stopped taking insulin within, you know, 12 to 20 hours, I'm probably 
toast. I mean, I'm gone from the planet. And so it's, it's definitely something that, you know, you have to be a little mindful of that. So there are certain countries I wouldn't travel through uh, because of that. This is, this is even more interesting. Now, what, what are you, what countries are you afraid of throwing <laughs> in jail, dude? Like you're going to go to like, yeah. and start looking for blow or what? dude? <laughs> <laughs> It's a good question. I don't know. I don't think I would. Yeah, it's a good. I, I don't know if there's any that I would be like a, any sort of target for. But I, I know, I, I will say that we were in. Uh, oddly enough, like we were in Portugal for also about six months a few years later, and um, what I did do that I shouldn't have done is I extended. We both extended our our um, our visa, so we were, we were given a three month visa. And we had heard, well, you know, Portugal, they're not like the rest of Europe. They're pretty chill and, you know, big deal if you, if you extend on your visa. And so we were just so in love with the country that when three months came around, we were just like, we're not going to leave this. We'll just take our chances. Um, and so at the end is when we kind of realized, oh shit, like we could, we could get deported or we could get something. And that's where I began to to question, like, was this safe? I, I, Probably think I would have been fine there, but I guess what what's interesting about it is that, you know, when you have something where, you have that kind of short of a fuse, like you know you, you, you most people can survive off even without water for a few days. This one you can't survive for more than a day, maybe half a day sometimes, without insulin, and and you're going to pay a huge consequence even if you do survive. Um, so it definitely makes you think twice about any kind of risk like that. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean I. I'm not a diabetic and I have like very complex strategies as I move around the world, you know, where I know what I need and how I'm going to get it. And it's like, um, I can't, that's what I was just thinking the whole time. Like if I was in India as a type one diabetic, like that would be very interesting to move around India, you know, needing that type of insulin. And I, I'm sure they must have it, but again, like getting it, like it's just and the communication thing, like that would be really in- interesting. It is, it is interesting. And one thing that is positive about it is that it's about um, a tenth of the price almost anywhere in the world. So that was sort of the, the plus. So if anybody's interested in saving some money, it's a great <laughs> great way to go abroad and get some cheap insulin and cheap whatever else, I'm sure. There's, there's a business for somebody listening. Start importing it to, to the yeah, States, dude. Yeah, yeah. Buying it cheap. Exactly. Well, this is cool, man. Thank you so much for your time. Um, so if somebody wants to reach out to you and, and find out more about like what you do or even get your services, they just go to restratoapp.com. Yeah. So it's restratoapps, plural, um, R-I-S-T-R-E-T-T-O-A-P-P-S.com. And there's a little contact form and love to hear from you. Sweet, man. And then the final question I'd like to ask anybody, you kind of already touched upon it, but if you wouldn't mind, just if somebody out there is listening, who's a type one diabetic, who wants to be an online entrepreneur, um, but obviously have their fears about traveling or even just starting that first venture, is there something you could say to them to help inspire them to take that first step? Yeah. And you know, my answer will be a little odd. Uh, first I would just say, uh, get in, look up Dr. Bernstein, that's that's all I'll say. So this is a de- this is a doctor who is also a type one diabetic, and his process literally changed my life forever. Um, the way he recommends eating, the way he recommends managing it. If I hadn't followed his protocols, traveling could have been much more dangerous for me, and also just become such a nightmare. I wouldn't have wanted to do it again. But it it, it is in a way of living and treating diabetes, uh, especially type one that makes things so much easier that you're almost, you almost forget you have it. So, um, look up Dr. Bernstein if you haven't done that. And, um, and otherwise 
you know, once, once you kind of figure out a few solutions, it's just about getting over that fear. And, um, I think it's, it's exciting. Don't, don't let that stop you basically. I love it, Kevin. Thank you so much for your time. And it's been such a pleasure. Yeah. Been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Awesome, Kevin. Thank you so much for your time. What a pleasure chatting with you. I really enjoyed our conversation on your podcast, Cafe Truth. So folks, head on over to Cafe Truth, episode 10. You get to hear him and I talk on his podcast. And if you need a WordPress plugin, check him out at restratoapp.com. He can definitely help with that and create that solution that you've been really looking for. So please, again, hit subscribe and whatever you're listening to this on, share this episode with a friend if you found it valuable and you think it could be helpful to somebody else. We do appreciate the comments, the five-star ratings, the shares, all really help Misfits and Rejects get found a lot easier throughout the searches on all these different podcast players. And thank you so much for listening. I think you all are so very beautiful. I'll see you next week's episode, Monday morning, 9 a.m. Pacific time. Thank you for joining us. Take care. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out and spread your wings and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.